right, so today is Palm Sunday. As Chelsea mentioned earlier, it's on the, the calendar for the church, right? But what is Palm Sunday? Well, it comes one week before Resurrection Sunday, which next week is Easter Sunday, right? That's kind of the, how it lines out on the calendar. Well, it also lines out that way in the Bible. Uh, the Bible tells a story of Palm Sunday, not as a pre-planned event, but something that happened as Jesus entered Jerusalem for the final time, the last week of his life. Now, what they didn't know was that the next week would be Resurrection Day. And a lot happened between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. It was a big week, the last week of Jesus' life. I mentioned last week that 40% of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in your New Testament, are focused on that one single week of Jesus' life. That's a lot. And so it's a big, big deal. Now, on that day, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, crowds filled the streets. They laid down their cloaks on the road in front of Jesus. They cut palm branches down, which is where we get the name Palm Sunday. They laid it down on the road in front of Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. And they shouted, Hosanna, which means save us. Now, they were convinced that Jesus had, in fact, come to save them, but to save them from the Romans. Now, we get into this in real detail uh, in the, the first sermon that we preached on the series, The Road to the Cross. You can actually find it online if you want to go back and hear more about Palm Sunday. They, they were talking about Jesus coming to save them from primarily the Romans. Well, we call this Jesus' triumphal entry uh, to Jerusalem. Well, Jesus did come to save, and he did come to triumph. Even at the end of our Bible, in the book of Revelation, it talks about Jesus' ultimate triumph and actually includes palm branches. Check it out. Revelation 7, verse 9 says, There was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, which is Jesus. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation! Save us. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Now Jesus had come to save and to triumph, but not the way the Jewish people expected or hoped. In fact, within five short days from Palm Sunday to what we call Good Friday, the shouts of the Jewish people changed from Hosanna to crucify him. That's a big, big change. So we want to come to understand more deeply, what was Jesus up to? Why did Jesus have to die? And so if you've got a Bible, I invite you to open it to Matthew chapter 27, where the road to the cross ends. And I want you to follow along with me, beginning in verse 32. It says, as they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced him to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. And then they sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. 
I want to pause there for a moment. This is the continuation of the story of Jesus' humiliation. We ended last week's sermon from verses 27 through 31 of this chapter 27 in Matthew, the beginning of Jesus' humiliation as this company of Roman soldiers gathered around him at Pilate's home, the governor of Rome and he's uh, of this Roman province, and he's, they're having this mock kind of sham trial for Jesus, and then Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified to the soldiers. The soldiers take him, they gather around him, they begin beating him, mocking him, spitting on him laying a crown of thorns on his head, mocking him as the king of the Jews, stripping him naked. I mean, all these just really, really abusive, emotionally, physically acts toward Jesus. They beat him within an inch of his life, and then they saddle him with the cross member, the beam, that would have his hands nailed to it and be attached to the upright, forming the cross of Jesus' crucifixion. So this is where we pick up in our story. They're forcing him to carry it, but he can't. He's already been beaten too badly. So aided by Simon, this parade of humiliation continues marching up Calvary's Hill to the grandstand of Golgotha, this climax of crucifixion where Jesus' hands would be nailed to that crossbeam and his feet to the upright as it's attached and lifted up. And Jesus hangs there. We think of crucifixion as just a way to end Jesus' life. That it's just an execution. If you think in your mind about what execution uh, looks like, you probably think of things like, you know, uh, horrific executions in, uh, you know, like the Holocaust. Or maybe you think of a, an electric chair. or something like. Maybe you think of a beheading. I mean, there's a horrific. Anytime someone's life is ended. But most of the time, execution is swift. Crucifixion was not. Crucifixion was slow. It was calculated. In fact, the Romans had perfected this form of execution. And the executioner was in charge of the whole process and could essentially determine from moment to moment what he must do to extend the torture of the person being executed. So what I want to show you is that in Jesus' humiliation, in this parade of humiliation up to Golgotha when he's hung on the cross, it's not just to end his life. Crucifixion is actually a process of dehumanization. Crucifixion isn't just to take someone's last breath. It's actually to strip away from them everything that makes them human, everything that makes them a person. Because that's how little that person was valued who had to be crucified. And so this is what Jesus endured. It was systematic. It was slow. It was calculated. It was taking away from him everything that made him a person. What is the implication of this for us? Well, Jesus took the curse of sin on himself as we studied last week, right? And then in one day, check this out, in one day on the cross, he endured what sin does to us over a lifetime. If the cross is dehumanizing, so is sin. Because sin systematically dehumanizes people. It started in the Garden of Eden, right? As as humanity engaged in sin, disobeying God, they twisted God's intention for creation. And the curse was, was laid upon not just humanity, but in all of the earth. Everything was twisted by sin and its curse. Everything God intended was was tainted 
changed forever. And so now we live under the curse of sin. Uh, the scripture calls it the, the curse of the law uh, in Ephesians. And so what I want to read to you, in, excuse me, in Galatians, but what I want to share with you right now is that as sin systematically dehumanizes people, twisting and tainting everything God created, it results in a slow and painful death. This is the end of sin for us. It's calculated. It's, it's put in front of us. We're led to sin. We're led to stay in sin by our enemy. But Jesus was dehumanized in one day on a cross so we could be rehumanized. So that we could be restored to what God intended it to be, to be truly human. Not just alive, not just breathing, but fully alive, flourishing, living eternally the way God intended before sin entered the world. So Jesus had to do this. And it's so interesting that crucifixion was the way that God elected Jesus, his death to, to come because it so mirrors what sin does to us. It's slow and painful death. But Jesus took that on, dehumanized, stripped from everything that made him a person so that he could give us everything we need to be truly human. And in this humiliation was an echo. Look with me in verse 38. We'll read just a little further. Verse 38 says, Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. So, did you hear the echo? I'm not sure, because it actually is an echo all the way back from the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4 is the story of the first week of Jesus' public ministry. And the echo resounds all the way to Jesus' final week of his public ministry and his public death. You remember what happened in Matthew? Jesus is baptized. He kind of says, God says, he's, you know, he's, my, uh, he's pleased, well pleased with Jesus already. And he, the spirit descends and this is my son. And Jesus launches into his public ministry. But then God leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus encounters Satan, the tempter, the enemy for the first time. Do you remember the first words Satan said to Jesus? He said, if you are the son of God, if you're the son of God, save yourself, in this case, from hunger by taking these stones and turning them into bread. And he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Surely God will save you. Don't you trust God to save you from this? And here in Jesus' final moments, of his final week of his life, he hears it all again. If you are the son of God, save yourself. If you are the son of God, he'll take care of you. Don't you trust him? Won't he save you? So what's the implication of this for us? 
Jesus had the power to do all this. Everything he was tempted, both by Satan and by the people who were humiliating him on the cross, he had the power to save himself. Yet he endured the insults and the insinuations. Why? Because Jesus didn't save himself so that others could have the possibility or the hope for life. In fact, it was precisely by not saving himself that made salvation possible for others. No other person would have hope for life outside of this. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 12 says in speaking of the cross. It says, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So Jesus endured this humiliation. He remained silent in this moment on the cross, knowing he had the power, but enduring death so that we could have life. It's a beautiful implication. Well, let's just keep reading. Verse 46 says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. Now, the emotional and physical pain that Jesus had endured to this point were only shadows compared to the darkness and spiritual anguish of bearing the curse and consequence of the sin of the world. And so at this darkest moment of human history, Jesus cries out with a loud loud voice in verse 47, the words that I want to camp out on for the rest of our little sermon together. Verse 47, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now, not knowing the Aramaic, unless you know Aramaic, you might assume Jesus is saying, Judas, Judas, why did you betray me? Or maybe he's saying, Peter, Peter, why did you deny me? He could even be saying something like, disciples, disciples, why did you desert me? But he's not. Your Bible tells you what Jesus says, what the meaning of this phrase is. The meaning is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me why have you abandoned me now this is a shocking statement it needs some explanation so I want to present maybe two ways to explain what Jesus is saying to understand to help us understand in a deeper way what was happening on the cross it's shocking I mean how could God forsake his own son how could God turn his back on his own son who was accomplishing the will of God right didn't Jesus willingly endure the cross like does Ephesians not say in chapter 5 Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. How could this be? How do we manage the tension of this moment as Jesus cries out these words, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Well, there's two explanations and implications. First, I want you to notice the tension. Notice the tension between his willingness to submit to God, to be obedient, but also the grim reality of God's wrath towards sin. This tension is happening. Jesus appeals to God in a personal way, saying, my God, my God. It's personal, but it's also reflective of who God is because the name he chooses to say to God is the name that refers to the Hebrew Elohim, which is the Hebrew name saying that God is all-powerful, that God is sovereign, that God is above all. 
that there is no one like him. And so at the same time, Jesus says God is personal to him, yet God is completely unique and all-powerful and sovereign. That whatever he says goes. And then on the other side of the coin, this other side of this tension, Jesus is saying, why have you forsaken me? He's saying he's coming to grips with this grim reality of God's wrath towards sin. He's wrestling with the reality of his situation. Now, his, the reality of his situation, he knew beforehand. I mean, even... 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah prophesied about this in chapter 53, which by the way, if this isn't on your reading plan yet for this week, you need to like write this down, Isaiah chapter 53. This is the perfect week to spend some time reading this chapter of prophecy from your scripture. Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus, which Jesus has known from the beginning of time, but even 700 years before Jesus' life, Isaiah says this, as God gives him these prophecies about the Savior, Just listen to these. I'll rapid fire shoot them off. He says, he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains. Struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. The Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. Now this sounds terrible to us. I mean, if you're really honest, how how does a father treat a son this way? Well, this is reflective of the deep, deep love that God has for people and the covenant he had already established. The old covenant was a covenant of blessing and of curse. And sin had to be paid for, right? Now, the New Testament calls us the curse of the law. In, in Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So as painful as this was, as shocking as it is to hear Jesus cry out these words, what we now understand is that Jesus was willingly exchanging his blessing for our curse. His death for our life. Now what's the implication for this? Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that we could be forgiven. He cried out so that we wouldn't have to. John Piper said this, said he paid the highest price possible to give me the greatest gift possible. Now, the second reason I think Jesus cries out these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a little more localized. I think he was saying it to the people at the cross, stirring something up in them. I think it was a final attempt for Jesus to see the hearts of the religious leaders and religious people softened toward him. Not to end his agony, Not to remove him from the cross, but to convince them of why it was necessary that he had to endure what he was enduring. It's actually, these words, the beginning of an old song. An old, old, old song. Even at the time of Jesus, this song was about a thousand years old. It's recorded in the book of Psalms in our Old Testament. Now, you know how we have access to just millions and millions of songs at the 
fingertip, right? Like you can just open your phone, you got Pandora or Spotify or Apple Music. You got all these things, you can just, any song you can find, you can get. Well, the Jewish people at the time of Jesus only had about 150 songs in this collection of psalms that was sort of the recognized, you know, hymnal of the day, right? They would sing these songs, they would recite them as prayers, and this was happening for a thousand years. So this is all developing. They knew it. They understood it. It was part of their education. It was, it was something that was ingrained in their memory, okay? Now, I want to try something with you. It's gonna, and you're going to have to participate a little bit with me just to prove this point, okay? I want to say some lyrics to a song, and I want you to say the next ones. All right, so start thinking your music, okay? Maybe you can anticipate what I'm going to say. Probably not. Here's the lyric. On a dark desert highway... Cool wind in my hair. Okay, someone was there already. We got some Eagles fans in the house. If you didn't know that, by the way, you just need to like, welcome to East Texas, Don Henley, lead singer, drummer for the Eagles. He wrote that song, Hotel California. He's from right up the road in Linden. Like, this is like history for us. We got to know the Eagles, okay? Some of you are like, can't believe he's talking about the Eagles in Hotel California in his sermon today. But the Eagles, all right, so you got that one. Let's make it a little more holy for the holy people in the room. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. Okay, we got some hymn lovers in the room. Here's what Jesus was doing. Every Jewish person within earshot of his final words, every religious leader, every religious person would have recognized that he was referring to a psalm and they would have been able to complete the lyrics. A thousand-year-old song on the tip of his tongue so that they might see one final attempt to soften their hearts toward the fact that he was paying the price for their sin. I want you to just listen to some excerpts from this psalm, Psalm 22. See if you recognize any of it. Verse one, you'll recognize, says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Verse 7, everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. 
Jesus' cry of anguish, his final words were the beginning of a song about trust in God. That though he was beaten, mocked, stripped naked, dehumanized, he trusted God to fulfill his purpose. Jesus knew that his last breath was not the end of his story. Jesus understood there was something much, much bigger happening on the cross. And he let out these words as a one final attempt for these religious people who would have gone, oh yeah, I know that song, for their hearts to be softened to what he was doing on their behalf. That they could also be saved that they could declare the works of the Lord, that generations of their families might hear about salvation and be transformed. And here we are today, fulfilling the promise of this song, declaring his righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? Even in Jesus' grief, His words were laced with grace for his enemies. Hoping that they would draw near to him in this moment. For their hearts to be softened. Now what's the implication for us? It's that Jesus has grace for you, even if you're against him. And even if your life has, wants nothing to do with him. He's got grace for you. Maybe even is calling out to you. One attempt after another for you to soften your heart toward him and to recognize that he paid the price for your sin so that God's will could be accomplished in your life, that you could be saved. He has grace for you, even if you're against him. And that was the end. Verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Jesus died. But what happens next is what makes Jesus' death unique from any death of any religious leader in the history of our planet. Now, as a preacher, I tend to reserve these kind of things for Easter Sunday. And that's like kind of the thing we always say on Easter is like resurrection is what makes Jesus different than every other religious leader of all time. And that's true. But in chapter 27, three days before resurrection, Jesus takes his last breath. And in his death, things start happening that make him completely unique from every other religious leader or religion in the history of the planet. Things that we have to reckon with, things that we have to understand, things that I hope will get us excited about who Jesus is and what his death means. And so I just want to kind of walk through these. If you've got your Bible open and you sort of want to like peek into verses 50 and following and see where I'm getting these things, then I want you to do that. But starting uh, in the beginning, when Jesus died, the temple curtain was ripped from top to bottom. An amazing miracle and absolutely a miracle. Now people were used to seeing Jesus perform miracles. He had done it his whole ministry. He had done these incredible public miracles, but now Jesus is dead. He's not breathing anymore. 
He's just hanging on the cross, but instantly, immediately, the 60-foot-tall, think pine tree tall, four-inch thick woven piece of fabric was ripped from top to bottom. They didn't have ladders that high. They didn't have sky lifts to get on. They didn't have anything that they could do. There wasn't some person that had climbed up to the top. Even if they had, they wouldn't be able to rip it. I mean, it is just an unbelievable miracle. For from top to bottom, the thing that represented the barrier between man and God to be ripped open. Jesus, who had once called himself the way, made a way in his death for sinful men to come before a holy God. That's what Jesus' death did. Sinful men can draw near to God. Hebrews 10, chapter 19 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. You might remember he was being mocked, taunted. Jesus, didn't you say you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? He had said that. Chapter 2, the Gospel of John, John records that statement. Jesus said, I'll, rebu- I'll tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, if he had just stopped it, I'll tear down the temple, they would have killed him then. They would have said, you're a blasphemer, you're treasonous, uh, you don't, you're not fit to be uh, alive, right? That, that's it, that's it for you. They would have convicted him at that moment. But it was kind of silly to the religious leaders because he said, I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're going, this thing took 40 plus years to build. I don't think you're doing anything in three days, right? You're just like kind of lost your mind, okay? But what Jesus meant was he was becoming the temple. His body, his life would be the connection between men and God. And in this moment of death, at his very last breath, instantaneously, the word is literally translated immediately, that curtain rips, opening up the barrier between sinful men and a holy God. This is what Jesus was doing, tearing the temple down and rebuilding it. And it started a lot quicker than three days, right? But it was completed at his resurrection. When Jesus died, number two, the earth quaked. A rumbling of the future reality. Again, the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 26 says, His voice shook the earth at that time. He let out that loud cry, took his last breath. The earth begins to quake, right? Hebrews 12 then continues and says, But now he's promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what's not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The rumbling of the earth was just a foretelling of when God will come and judge all sin, evil will be defeated forever, and God will restore all things to himself, redeeming everything that's redeemable, making things new again, so that we could live the way God intended at creation, without the stain or twist or taint of sin. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Number three, when Jesus died, the rocks were split. I just got to be honest, I never really thought about this verse until recently I read this sermon by Charles Spurgeon, great, great preacher. He said, men's hearts did not respond to the agonizing cry of the dying Redeemer, but the rocks responded. He did not die for rocks, yet rocks were more tender than the hearts of men for whom he shed his blood. So to borrow from Psalm chapter 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Number four, when Jesus died, dead people came back to life. I'm just gonna admit, this is weird. This is strange to us, right? This is an oddity. You can read what happens. The tombs are opened and then, then people are resurrected, but kind of coinciding with Jesus' resurrection, they, still, they don't sort of come out of their tombs until that point, Matthew tells us in verse 53. But as odd as it is, here's an illustration to help you. Uh, does your family open gifts on Christmas Eve? Anybody do that? Or you know people who do that? My family never did that. I always had friends who did that, and I was jealous of it. Like, that's cool. You get to open a gift on Christmas Eve. Well, now that I'm a parent, we still don't really do that, but uh, I now understand one thing about that. If you're giving your gifts, kids' gifts on Christmas Eve, you're not giving your best gift on Christmas Eve, are you? No. You're giving a good gift, right? I mean, every gift is a good gift from your parents, but the best gift comes on Christmas morning, right? This is what God was doing through dead people coming back to life. He was showing us the resurrection of the few, coinciding with the resurrection of Jesus as a foretaste of when all who are in Christ will be physically resurrected when Jesus returns. And if Jesus had not died, then our only option would be to die and remain dead. But there's a better way. And it shows us right here, just a little taste. Last, when Jesus died, access to God was open for all. Verses 54 and 56, we see a Roman centurion. The man who likely was responsible for gathering the whole company of soldiers around Jesus at Pilate's mansion. The man who probably gave the order for Jesus to be nailed to the cross. The man who likely was the leader of the mockery, who may have nailed the sign to the cross above Jesus' head. This man makes an astonishing statement. He, He said, Jesus must be the Son of God. And this guy's a Roman. The Jewish people would have excluded him de facto just from his heritage, that he has no place with God. Yet when Jesus dies, all of a sudden he's welcome and his story is told. And then it tells us about women, a group of women who otherwise would be neglected or disregarded in Judaism that when Jesus dies, they're there. In fact, the story is that, that they were there throughout his crucifixion. 
which is probably Matthew's way of recognizing and acknowledging that the women stayed faithful when the disciples deserted Jesus, even including Matthew himself. And so women who generally were disregarded at Jesus' death now are explicitly welcome into eternal life, life with Jesus as his followers. And this is a beautiful picture. In other words, what we see here is two people, two groups who normally would be excluded, now included. And what I believe is being said here is that now anyone is welcome to come to God. Anyone can come to God through Jesus. In fact, this had already been told. John chapter 3, John records Jesus' words. He said, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes would not perish but would have eternal life. This is who Jesus is. And this is why he died. So that we could have life the way God intended it before sin entered the world because Jesus died so that sin could be forgiven. 